Well, friends, if you have a Bible, can I encourage you to open it to the book of Ruth and the first chapter? The beginning of the Old Testament begins with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then it runs into some of the the histories that take place after that. So then Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. So it's the eighth book in the Bible, if you can't find it. We'll see the words on the screen in a moment or two. Now, um, the book of Ruth opens with really an unspeakable sequence of tragedies that take place in the life of a woman called Naomi, who's a Hebrew woman, and she travels because of famine with her small family to a neighboring country called Moab, where having experienced famine, having then become a dislocated family group and almost, you know, accurately actually, refugees in a foreign country, Naomi's husband dies, and then her two sons also die in early adulthood, leaving their wives, uh, these two foreign women called Orpah and Ruth. Now, we pick up the story from verse 6 when it tells us Naomi's actions. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she knows now that there's food back home in Bethlehem in, in Israel. So it says, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah decides to go home to her family in Moab. Ruth is committed to Naomi, and it says, she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. We began a series last week in this short book. It's only four chapters long, the story of Ruth. It's been described as the most beautiful love story ever written. 
Uh, I think the last time I read a love story would have been for my GCSEs when we were compelled to read Jane Austen. So I couldn't possibly comment on whether that's true or not, but it is beautiful. It's very, very stirring. And it grips me for so many reasons. As I mentioned to you last week, it's the origin story of the Lord Jesus Christ a thousand years before he's born, the story of some of his ancestors. It gives you some wonderful, um, fascinating insight into the lineage of Jesus, which is, really bears on what he came to accomplish. It's also an incredible story of the sovereignty of God, how God is in the details of our lives, but also how he's in control of the great picture that runs over thousands of years, and how in only his perfect wisdom these things weave together. And it'll take your breath away to see how that works. And I also am drawn to it because of its, the way it speaks to us even today in the 21st century. It speaks to issues of love, of femininity and masculinity and a number of other issues. And it addresses us right now. Now, last week, we began by thinking about Naomi in her pain. And we felt certainly that it's right to dwell on the reality, the opening of the book, of the bitterness of her pain. And we saw how her pain, on the one hand, she reacts with such nobility to the reality of what she's been through in life. She has suffered this sequence of tragedies in, around, in a 10-year window of her life that would flatten any one of us. And yet, in and through it, she teaches us how to lament, how to sit with your sorrow before God, how not to sink into yourself and become bitter and twisted and null. She still has a wonderful love for her daughters-in-law. She's not a completely distorted person by her grief, as can so easily happen. And she still has faith in God. So we've seen this wonderful nobility in this mother, Naomi. But we also see a kind of blindness in her. And the blindness, I think, is a consequence of her pain. When you go through pain in life, especially deep, deep pain, the trauma of the things that you have been through can create a kind of prism through which you see all of life. You may remember from your school years how you can shine a white beam of light through a prism of glass and if the glass is shaped the right way, it can spread out the rays of light into its different frequencies so that you have the colors of the rainbow. And there's a sense in which pain is like a prism. And what it does is it can blind you to certain aspects of life and certain colors and so that you can only see other aspects of what's happening in your life and to you. And Naomi seems to have come to a point in her pain and her darkness of heart where she cannot see the goodness of God anymore. And she's blind to it. And John Piper put it like this. He said, when we have decided that God is against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness and we become so bitter that we can't see the rays of light peeping out around the clouds. Sometimes that can be a season of your life. Sometimes that can last for years. Where a person sees only the evil around them and they feel that God is against them. One of the ways that you see this blindness in Naomi is that she doesn't seem to fully understand and appreciate the gift of God that Ruth is to her. So that when she arrives home in Bethlehem and her friends say, is this Naomi? They can't believe how much she's aged and how much she's changed by the pain that she's been through. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitterness. For the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. 
She says, I went away full. Seems to have forgotten that she left in famine. She says, no, I went away with my family all around me in fullness of heart, and here I come back empty. But this isn't true. She left in famine, and she returned with the love of a daughter-in-law whose love and commitment stands out towers above so many other characters in Scripture. She is a unique woman, Ruth, a real hero of the faith. And I want us to think about this, that the quality and the depth of the commitment of Ruth's love that she shows to Naomi. The reason why I think we need to dwell on this is because of the the need that we have, especially in our day and age. We live in an age that is starved of real love and commitment. It's obvious on so many levels to me. It's obvious in the, in the realm of romantic love. How if you want to enter into the world of seeking to find a spouse, you know that the dating game is a game in which commitment is, is very rarely offered. And even marriage itself, should you have the, fortune, the good fortune of getting married, so often marriage these days is seen as something temporary. You know, even in what is supposed to be the most permanent example of committed love, we struggle to see that permanence in our day and age. And along with that, we have the issue of our lives and lifestyles, the way that modern people live in the Western world, how we are so rootless, how we will move from place to place, city to city, country to country. And of course, there can be good reasons for this. A good chunk of our church are people who have moved here from from overseas, from other parts of the country. And I, I don't want to be critical of that, but it also betrays something of the reality of the world and the culture in which we live, in which that's seen as normal, in which we live rootless lives, lives that are no longer located in a place with a specific people. And there can be damaging effects of that in the round when you think about your life in the whole and how that affects your friendships. And I think the consequence of all this is that many of us struggle to look around and see the kinds of deep, permanent, lasting, committed friendships that make life so much safer and more joyful. And the results are everywhere to be seen. If this is what's lacking, I think this goes a heck of a long way in explaining the profound ways that we exhibit deep insecurities, how loneliness has been increasing in our day and age, how people are more prone to anxieties and fears. I'm not saying there's a one-in-one connection, but without a doubt, anxiety and fear, when it controls your life, is so often a symptom of living an isolated and lonely life without people who really know you and share your burdens. Ruth stands out in the Bible, as somebody who demonstrates for us and models for us a profound love and friendship to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And I want us to consider what kind of love is this? What kind of friendship is this? The first thing that you'll see about this friendship is that this is deeply sacrificial. The quality of her love is sacrificial. I don't think that necessarily will jump off the page at you because you have to have a little bit of cultural understanding to see exactly what she does here. We live in a time, as I've just mentioned, when it is quite normal 
for a single young woman like Ruth to move cities, even countries, in search of opportunity, in search of love, in search of something, and that many of you, that's your story. And so we don't even bat an eyelid at that reality. We, we, we meet people every day in London for whom this is their, their, their experience, the way that they have lived. And so it's become very normal for us. In the society in which Ruth lived, she is in a deeply vulnerable, vulnerable position here as a young widow. Why is that? Well, it's because she lives in a world in which the roles of men and women are so clearly defined and the structures of society are so defined where in order to have provision in the household, you needed a man to earn a living, very often because the work that they engaged in was manual and required great strength. And for a woman, her role was to run a household, which often functioned as a business so that she had many plates spinning at the same time. She was raising children. She was running potentially servants within the home, and she was running a business in the home in order to, in order to have food on the table. And that, there was a complementarity to that so that it worked as a whole. You had the husband, you had the wife, you had children, and it functioned as a unit, as an industrious unit. But as soon as you take the husband out of the picture, Ruth, as a widow, is in a profoundly vulnerable state here. And we'll see as the story unfolds that she has to resort to what is the ancient equivalent of begging in order to survive. It has a certain dignity with it, as we'll see, but that's the position that she's in. And then, to already be in that position, she then makes this decision. She decides to move to a country where she's never lived, Naomi's home country, where she does not speak the language, and where also she is without a doubt going to run into a very human problem, the problem of difference, the problem of prejudice, the problem of ethnocentrism, where we tend to view the world through the lens of, I want to be with people who are like me. And it wasn't necessarily that we could describe this as racism because I think on the surface, these people, you know, it's a very modern concept. On the surface, Ruth would have looked no different from the Israelites. They all were Middle Easterners. But they were profoundly ingrained with a sense of the superiority of their own people, especially for Israel, who were the called and chosen people, so that Ruth, the foreigner coming in, would have been looked down upon without question, not desirable not a potential spouse for a good Jewish lad. And so this is why Naomi practically begs her, go home. You have no future with me in Israel. I can't give you a son to marry, which would have been the custom that they, she might have married a younger brother if she was widowed. I can't do that for you. So you, you really want to die a childless old widow like me? That's what she asks her. And Orpah, of course, I don't think we can judge her for the fact that she decides to go home to her family. It's the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to do. It's the wise thing to do. But Ruth, in this moment of what seems like total irrationality, makes a completely selfless choice and says, I am with you no matter what. I wonder if we're comfortable with the idea of sacrifice in friendship. 
I think on the one hand, you would instantly say to me, well, of course. What is friendship if you won't make sacrifices for one another? Self-denial is at the heart of love, isn't it? And therefore, a friendship where that doesn't, isn't on display at all is not a real friendship. It's a superficial or a fake, a, a convenience friendship. And I, th- I agree with you. But I think at the same time, we live in a world in which we are, we're taught to set limits and boundaries to the love that we show towards others. If we find ourselves in a position where someone else's sadness or grief or need is so draining us of life, it's very common these days to say, look, I just need to take some time out to focus on me. I just need to to focus on a little bit of self-care now. I need to establish boundaries in order to, you know, just watch out for me. And this is normal. This is a part of our common parlance, isn't it? That, yeah, I'll help a friend, but only to a, a limit. You know, it's not, not to the point where it's damaging me. I need to take care of me first. And so I'm, you say, I'm comfortable with sacrifice until it becomes truly sacrificial, essentially. And I recognize this as a complex issue. Because there are, there, there's a reality in which we are vulnerable, aren't we? To giving away too much of ourselves in the sense that especially if you are someone who's prone to guilt and sensitivity of conscience, you are vulnerable to being used and abused by others and taken for granted, and all these things are true. I think the analogy of the oxygen mask in the plane is a valid one here. You know how they tell parents in planes that should their cabin lose pressure, make sure you put the mask on yourself before you take care of your kids, because the, the very real likelihood is that if the the, the cabin pressure drops, you'll pass out before you even manage to get it on your kid, and then you'll both die. And there's a sense in which that's true in the context even of friendship, isn't it? We need to have a healthy soul, a nourished soul, a soul that's, that's, that's fed by um, the Lord and is at peace in order to then keep giving towards others. I recognize that. But at the, at the same time, it seems to me that we're so conditioned these days to think that selfishness is normal, that the idea of making real, genuine, hurt, hurting sacrifices for the sake of another has become deeply foreign to us. And yet in Scripture, it's right at the heart of what love means. The most common word that's used in the New Testament for love is agape, a quality of love that the Christian is called to, this kind of selfless love, an unconditional love, a love that gives. Jesus said this, he said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? The answer is in the spending of his life, even to death on the cross, the very emptying of himself without holding anything back for the sake of us. And Jesus says, that is how you're called to love one another as the children of God. He said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Friends, we have to sit here and recognize the profound challenge in that. The example of Ruth, the direct words of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the heart of love and committed love and agape and friendship is this idea of spending yourself on behalf of others, of sacrificing your good for the benefit of others. This quality of friendship that Ruth demonstrates, therefore, is deeply sacrificial. 
A second thing about this, this love that she demonstrates to Naomi is, is this, that alongside it being sacrificial, it's also covenantal. Now, this will strike you as a slightly bizarre idea, so I need to explain it for a second. What is a covenant? A covenant is the exchanging of promises, binding promises, with benefits and conditions and punishments if you fail. The only place in which we're really familiar with the idea of covenant in an interpersonal one-on-one love relationship is, of course, within the context of marriage, where two people make these promises, these binding promises to one another. And if they break those promises, even in our day and age, there will be deep ramifications, fallout, trauma, brokenness. But marriage is different to what Ruth is doing here, isn't it? One thing, marriage isn't, it has the quality of agape love, but it's also eros, erotic love, romantic love, which will compel you to give yourself to another in that way. At the heart of marriage, there is also the act of sex, which in the Bible is the physical cutting of that covenant promise. So the promise in, in the Bible, covenants were always sealed with physical acts so that the, the Israelite man had his foreskin cut as a physical sign of his belonging to God. Or they might cut an animal as a symbol of the covenant with the Lord in relationship in the sacrificial system. And in marriage, sex is the physical act which seals the covenant. Of course, that's not happening in this relationship. So it hasn't got erotic love. There's no sex involved. There's no children Covenant love in marriage makes sense because you need to establish the boundaries and security of a loving, stable home in order to raise children so that they will be as, as li- as the least damaged that you can possibly achieve, right? That's the aim. And also, it's not a relationship with your mother-in-law, which needs to be said and pointed out, right? <laughs> so for all these reasons... This is something very strange that's happening here, friends. Because here is a daughter-in-law making the kinds of committed promises to a mother-in-law that only, you only normally see in the context of marriage. And here, just for the avoidance of doubt, look at the, the, what, the, what we're told here. It says, for example, in verse 14, that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. In other words, she kissed her goodbye. And then it says that Ruth clung to her. The word there for clinging is the same word that's used in the Hebrew when Adam meets Eve and they are married and it says a man shall leave a father and his mother and hold fast or cling or cleave is the old English translation. Cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Ruth cleaves to Naomi. The other, another thing you see here is the kind of giving of vows. You heard it, didn't you? When she says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I'll be buried. And it sounds a lot to me like for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. Archbishop Cramner's vows that are at the heart of the marriage ceremony. And then there's this curse she calls upon herself. She says, May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That's an invitation. God can strike me down and kill me if I ever leave you, mum. The only other relationship I know of, love relationship in the Bible, where there is that kind of a penalty attached to the breaching of the vows, is in the context of marriage. 
where an adulterer could be stoned in the Old Testament for having broken these binding covenant vows. You can see what's happening here, right? Ruth makes the kind of commitment to her mother-in-law that really only belongs typically within a marriage. And you ask, well, is this normal and is this expected? My first answer to your great relief is no. This isn't normal. It's not normal even in the Bible. The only other example that even comes close to this is David and Jonathan's friendship in which they have this profound love for each other and Jonathan sacrifices the throne to give it to David out of this sense of love and commitment to him. But at the same time, I don't think this is totally outlandish. In fact, I think it resonates with something inside each one of us on numerous levels. It resonates with our nature that there's a part of us that wants to give and receive this kind of committed love. Do you remember how as children we used to obsess about who was your best friend at any given time, right? And you kind of grow out of that because you realize that you can't really rely on anyone at that level. (laughs) And you can't commit to anyone like that. But before you became jaded and cynical, you had a best friend, right? Because that's human nature, to give and receive love at that level. It resonates with our desires. We all want to find someone or people in life who'll satisfy this ache that I can trust you and you can trust me. You know, I've, I've tasted this at seasons in my life. One of the joys of first planting this church was the committed love that was shown to us by this, that little group of people who st- sat in our living room and said, we're in. Most of them have left now, sadly. But, you know, <laughs> at the time, at the time, for good reasons, at the time, you know, it felt like this is, this is profound, this sense of we're in this together. I experienced that in an ongoing way as a pastor, so many of you have said, we're here, we're committed, we're, we're, we're members of the church, we're leading, we're, we're loving with you, we're working with you, we're laboring alongside you. I experienced it as an elder with my brothers, Luke and Jeremy, who are elders with me. We, we, we have a sense in which we are back to back as brothers in arms. I experienced it in marriage, of course, but this resonates with the deep desire inside all of us. We want this kind of love. We want this quality of love. It resonates with the need inside all of us especially in a day and an age when it's becoming increasingly difficult to find married love. And singleness is a very real, a real um, outlook for many, many people, whether volitionally or, or non-volitionally. And then you hear the challenge of the Apostle Paul in, 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 in his letters to the Corinthians where he said it's better to be single. And you think, well, how is it possible to live that life? And the answer is, well, you have to have better friends. This quality of love, it resonates also with the reality, like it or not, of what it means to be a Christian, friends. You may not have realized this, but part of being in the family of God is entering into the covenant of family in which the scriptures summon and call you to this kind of level of passionate love for one another in which you are serving one another and loving each other in a way that is the giving of yourself and also then also the receiving of love from others. Church is never meant to be a revolving door of low commitment. People hopping around from church to church just to see if they get what they need. It's supposed to be the spending of ourselves in selfless love for one another, rooted in a deep sense of commitment to the family of God, this covenant commitment. 
So even if I think Ruth is very unique, the quality of the love which is undergirded by this commitment, I'm for you and I'm with you no matter what, is a quality of love that is well worthy of imitation and also something I think we deeply need in our hearts and lives. Her love is sacrificial. Her love is covenantal. Let me show you one last thing. This love is also deeply, profoundly spiritual. It is a spiritual friendship. Now, in order to understand what I mean by that, I think you have to start a step back and ask yourself, what is friendship? What, what word defines what makes a friendship real? What word for you sums up the reality of friendship? And I think you could throw a number of suggestions in here. Some of you might say, well, love is at the heart of friendship. And I'd say, well, I agree with you to a point, except that we're also called to love our neighbors in Scripture. And so love is too broad a word to describe friendship. Another of you might say, well, laughter is at the heart of friendship. I say, yes, it's true. Some friends make you laugh. Others seem to make you cry. <laughs> Some of you say, well, time is at the heart of friendship. And I think there's a, there's a truth to that. Very often your friendships are forged through years of being in each other's lives. But it's also true that you can form friendships very quickly with some people. And also you can spend a ton of time with your colleagues. It doesn't mean they're your friends, does it? <laughs> so it's not necessarily time either. And you ask, well, what one word summarizes the, the biblical idea and the essence of what friendship is? And for me, the essence of, of friendship is summarized by the word sharing. You say, well, that sounds deeply disappointing answer to the question. Let me explain what I mean to you. When the Lord Jesus Christ addressed his disciples and said, you're my friends, he put it like this. He said, no longer do I call you servants. Remember, he's Lord of all things, and he can call us servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. So just like your boss might have all kinds of great grand plans, and he, he or she does not have to share them with you. You just have to do what you're told. He said, that's the position of a servant. But he says, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The Lord Jesus Christ lived a life of revealing God to his disciples. And he pointed there to the essence of friendship. Friendship is the sharing of your life. And that can be true on so many levels. It's true in terms of your your time is true in terms of your of humor and laughter and all these good things. But it is most true in terms of the opening of your heart, the sharing of your heart. That's at the essence of friendship in my mind. And it has to be a two-way relationship as well, doesn't it? That's why you, you can't become friends with your therapist. You might open your heart to them, but it's not a two-way relationship, Right? Otherwise, that's just unprofessional. And, and moreover, I, I think, you know, and take this in the spirit in which it's said, I'm not meaning to be critical, but I think that very often the, the, the exponential growth in people's sense of a need for therapy in our day and age is because of a deficit of friendship. I'm not saying that that's true in every case, but I am saying that very often it is a, a substitute for the, this gaping hole we have of a shared life with others in which we can truly be known and known know them. Now, I say all that because I think it brings us a step closer to understanding what spiritual friendship is. If your normal, everyday friendships are defined by sharing, 
in some way. Shared interests, shared life, shared loves, shared humor. These things are shared. There's one thing that defines spiritual friendship above all. It's a sense of a shared spiritual passion. The shared love for the Lord. The remarkable and supernatural element of this, of course, is the fact that you and I have all experienced that you can enjoy that kind of a friendship with someone with whom you share nothing else in common. You don't have to have a, a shared story, a shared background, shared interests. Just about everything else you can take off the table. But if you share the same passion for the Lord, you can experience spiritual friendship with another person. You will, of course, find people with whom you share all those things together. And this is what we see in Ruth's friendship to Naomi. It is a spiritual friendship because it is a shared journey that they go on together. Where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, she says to her. It's a picture there of the Christian life as a pilgrimage. My experience is that the longer I have walked this pilgrim walk with others in my life, the deeper that spiritual friendship has become. We know each other. We share a journey together towards Christ. It's a shared journey. It's also a shared identity. This is such an important point in our day and age. Here's what Ruth says to her. As a foreigner, a Moabite, speaking to her Hebrew mother-in-law, she says, your people shall be my people. She says, we're going to, from here on, share identity. And we live in a day and an age that wants to exalt and magnify your uniqueness and your unique identity. Be that based upon your, your sexual preferences or your race or some other aspect of who you are, your background and these kinds of things. And it's become such a strong part of the, the cultural assumption about what gives us value that we want to exalt and magnify these elements of who I am to the degree and the result is of all this, that it creates more division in the world because we're looking for our differences. And the gospel is, is, runs counter to that because it, the gospel doesn't want to magnify those things as definitive of who you are. Not that they're irrelevant or unimportant, these other elements of what make you you. But the gospel, above all, champions and magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore unites us in him because every one of us are sinners in need of him. Every one of us has, been, has experienced the reality of his, his death paying for our sins. And of us being united with him in his death. And then raised with him. So bound together to become one family. The gospel emphasis is always about the centrality of Christ in our lives. As the primary thing that gives you a sense of identity on this world. And it's not that the Lord wants to obliterate other elements of who you are. Or discount them. Or, or say that they're not important but they are relegated to a secondary or tertiary level behind this one great fact. We are God's people united in Christ. And that's what you see going on here when Ruth says, your people shall be my people. She's shedding herself of this, these, this, this prior identity that she's felt that would become a division between her and Naomi and a division between her and Naomi's people. And she's shedding that and, and taking it off like a, like a garment might be taken off and saying, I want to be one with you and share a spiritual passion and friendship. 
Friend, if you are someone who yearns and aches to experience unity with the family of God, Christ has to be central in your life. And as I said, it's not that the Lord wants to ignore or discount the other elements of what make you you. They are a cause of celebration and goodness so often. But you can only know this depth and quality of friendship with God's people when you can say we're one in Christ. One of the things that so grieved me when we went through all the upheaval of what took place in 2020 after the death of George Floyd. I think that one of the great challenges that we have is knowing how to keep Christ at the center of our fellowship and our love for one another and trust each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. He is what binds us. This is one of the qualities we see in Ruth. Wow. Your people shall be my people, she says. And she has this shared faith. She says, your God, my God. This is what's spoken of in the book of Ecclesiastes when it says, it speaks about the importance of friendship and partnership in life. And it says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If one falls, the other will lift up his fellow. There's a sense in which we're stronger in friendship. But then it brings it to a conclusion in that paragraph in Ecclesiastes 4. It says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. What is meant there is that just as a rope is very often the binding of three cords twisted together, two doesn't work. Three does. When God is at the center of that weave, You experience deeper unity with others and strength in friendship. And of course, they also have a shared end. She says, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Worldly friendship, by definition, is finite. It has an end. It can only ever last until death. But spiritual friendship is a friendship that can last beyond death. The image in Revelation is of people of many tribes and tongues worshipping before the throne. We're going to know each other better in eternity than we do now. And all of our superficial differences are going to matter less and less because we'll trust each other and love each other and be fixated on the lamb who's, lying, who's, looking, who's on the throne looking like a lamb who was slain. We're catching a a glimpse of this here in what Ruth says to Naomi. A spiritual friendship is Christ-centered. Friend, I want to conclude and just say this. This vision of friendship is in some ways unattainable, isn't it? Such a high bar. How can I ever give myself to another in that way or to that degree? How can I ever find a friend like that? And in one sense, I want to say this quality of friendship is, is in, in a sense, impossible because you and I will always have a vestige of self-interest, won't we, and of, of selfishness. And it's hard to trust one another when we so often fail and we so often fail one another. Which brings me back to the reality of Christ. Everything that I've said about the quality of Ruth's love 
to Naomi is true in perfection in the friendship that the Lord Jesus Christ has shown to you. If Ruth's love for Naomi was sacrificial, Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the ultimate sacrifice for you. He bled and died that he might be friends with you. His love is covenantal, which is to say that he makes unbreakable promises to be committed to you. It says in the book of Hebrews, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It says in, in John's gospel, this is what Jesus says by way of a covenant commitment to us. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I'm your friend forever, is what he's saying. I'm married. I'm bound to you in marriage. And of course, his, this friendship is spiritual. There is no more deeply spiritual friendship than this friendship that you can know with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul could say it like this. You know, the sharing of your life with Christ is at the heart of the gospel. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, when you become a Christian, there's a sense in which you lose yourself into Jesus. Your whole life is shared into him, but he shares his life with you also. There's nothing between you and him. There's nothing that stops your heart, in a sense, becoming one with his. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. And it's the reason why we can have hope, because the life that he lived is your life. The death that he died is your death. The resurrection in which he triumphed over the grave is your resurrection. And you are completely in him, and he is in you. And that is the, the, the spiritual friendship that the scriptures speak of. So before you can ever give this friendship to another... And there is a sense in which we are called and challenged to seek to demonstrate this sacrificial, committed, and spiritual love towards others. You first have to receive it from Christ. You first have to know Christ is your friend. Not just as your Lord, because he says, I, I don't call you servants. He does want to be the Lord of your life, but more than that, he wants to be your friend. This is a word to those of you who are not yet Christian. If you want to know this quality of friendship in your life, brother, sister, you need to know Jesus as your friend. But it's a word to us also as believers in Christ because so often the Christian life can be lived without the enjoying and the savoring and the relishing of what friendship with Christ is about. The Lord Jesus wants to give himself to you entirely. He has given himself to you in that way. And he wants to invite you into the deeper experience of that friendship.